Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. A cracking episode coming up for you today. We've got our monthly focus group. Uh, if you haven't caught this before, we do it every month. We uh, convene a focus group like political parties do, like Downing Street does, to sit alongside uh, opinion polls to try and get a sense of what voters are making of things. We've got a collection of swing voters uh, from three parts of the UK uh, coming up on the podcast. They will ask them what they think about the party leaders, about the budget and about COP26 and climate change and all of that. So that is coming up in a moment. But first, as ever, it's our columnist panel. It's Tuesday, so it must be Finkelvich. It's Daniel Finkelstein and David Iwanovich. Meet the Cerberus of columnists, the Janus of journalism, and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Yes, it's that time on a Tuesday. Everybody's favourite time on a Tuesday morning. Uh, Danny Finkelstein's in the studio with me. Morning, Danny. Good morning. And David, where are you beaming in from? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you see, you see, that's why we're paying the big bucks. <laughs> yeah, morning, David. How are you? Oh, sorry. Are we on? Yes, yes, on? yes, yes, yes. No, yes sorry, yes. dropped off there for a moment. How are you? Uh, I'm good. Bit tired. <laughs> evidently, evidently. So we were talking. We we're talking this morning about people falling asleep because of Boris Johnson and Joe Biden falling asleep. Either, apart from you doing that, David, either of you got stories of tales when you've fallen asleep? Well, I've myself fallen asleep in the front row of the visitors' gallery in the budget, uh, and I managed to make a number of the uh, sketches for falling asleep. But my favourite falling asleep story is David Owen, who told me that he fell asleep while on live television during <laughs> during a general election campaign when Jeffrey Howe was speaking. And <laughs> only woke up when the presenter said to him, what do you think of that, David Owen? And he had to say, um, that's not the real issue. <laughs> he said nobody noticed, which made him a little bit uh, wary about after uh, about these late-night television appearances. Maybe that's a, that's a good um, tip. That if you ever hear a politician saying that's not the real issue, they may not have been fully paying attention. What about exactly. you, David? Well, if you were to admit that in your younger days you'd once fallen asleep during the act of Congress itself, you'd never be forgiven, would you? <laughs> so that's why you'd never admit it. Good. And I think in the interest of your ongoing campaign to get us off comms, I think we'll move on 
Uh, I didn't use a bad word. No, I did I not use a bad no, word. No, I know, and which is why we're going to move on to stop you, stop the, the obvious temptation. The obvious temptation. Um, let's uh, talk about COP. And um, the particular thing that I'm interested in your, your take on, um, the sort of... People talk about hypocrisy. Everyone was getting very overexcited yesterday because Boris Johnson apparently is going to fly back from Glasgow. Uh, interestingly, some of the journalists who were getting very cross about that yesterday flew to Glasgow themselves on Sunday because the trains weren't working. Um, uh, and do these? And they could have walked. They could have walked. <laughs> they could have walked, as the proclaimers told them to do. Um, but does this make any difference, Danny? The... No. We are absolutely not going to solve the climate change problem by people uh, not driving to the summit meetings. Um, this is like that. I used to have a, a record of Sooty and Sweep, and Sooty was trying to plane down a tree to make a <laughs> cocktail stick. And that is what that approach to climate change will uh, constitute. <laughs> Sorry, what's we... this record? <laughs> <laughs> you, you mean you didn't have it? Well, my, we only had six records in my house, and one of them was the Sooty and Sweet Christmas Show. Um, and that, that, that featured heavily. And, and there was and, a song about whittling down a tree. No, it's not a song, Matt. You have to get with the programme. It was a sketch. Um, and I just think that but much of politics consists of what I call sootynomics, which is basically planing down a tree to make a cocktail stick. You can't solve the climate problem that way. We're going to solve that the problem by creating a source of clean energy uh, and then making sure that we adapt all of our outputs to the clean energy. We're not going to solve it by isolated individuals or even large numbers of individuals um, not making uh, short journeys uh, that, you know, might reduce our climate uh, footprint, but it's a gross diversion from the, the actual target of net zero. So anybody uh, anybody who is interested in this, Bill Gates captures this really brilliantly in his book on uh, on uh, avoiding a climate disaster. And um, I often look at these people and they're complaining about you know, everyone travelling to the summit and they and Greta Thunberg complaining about what's going on inside. And they often strike me as like the sort of people who feel that they ought to grow a moustache in November but forget to get anyone to sponsor them. Right? All these... Pro- <laughs> All these protests don't mean anything unless you're actually doing something that's going to make a difference. And that has to be politically attuned. Wowzers. So Danny's, Danny's uh, say we need uh, the, the stop, be, the, stop being like Sooty. And uh, he's gone for Greta, which is very high risk. Uh, what do you think, David? I'm so, I'm so beguiled by the image of the seven-year-old Danny Finkelstein sitting there listening to Sooty and Sweet records. Uh, kind of, and, and, and does it explain a lot? Maybe it does. Maybe it does. I'm, I'm, tediously, I completely agree with Danny. Oh. Uh, with, 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 I know, I'm, t- I, I'm sorry, although the attack on Greta Thunberg is obviously something that should be immediately put to Ofcom, etc. No mind my swearing. Um, uh, um, it is, but I think actually what I'm more worried about in this is the way in which it becomes an excuse for everybody else. If you can say, oh, they, they arrived there in all their big cars and they kept their engines uh, uh, on uh, outside the uh, headquarters or somebody flew here, etc. You know what's going on here for the most part. It's not just this kind of, you know, I'm better than youism. It's also a fabulous excuse for not actually thinking you should do something or there's not such a big problem because if they're going to do this then in that case it can't be as big a problem as the, uh, as they're saying and so on so it becomes this kind of feeble excuse I, I felt that a bit during the dominic cummings business to uh during coronavirus yeah um he was in the wrong and yep yeah, it was a bad thing to do 
But the way in which it became a kind of excuse for everybody else, oh, well, a lot of people are not going to kind of carry on uh, observing the restrictions anymore because Dominic Cummings didn't. You thought, well, actually, there's a virus out there. What's that got to do with whether Dominic Cummings did or didn't do this? That's the issue there. But, of course, you want to try and escape it because it's so much easier to locate your kind of notions of what's happening in these very easily told and remembered stories, which also have the effect of... Uh, of exculpating yourself from the, what it is you might have to do or what it is you might have to worry about. I suppose the, the, the counterpoint is that the, if the government is going to make people change their way they live their lives, uh, or at least ask us to, I think that actually the main point is that they sort of merely asking us to think about getting a different boiler or driving less or eating less meat or whatever it might be, um, you at least want to think that they might be willing to do the same thing, that Boris Johnson could sit on a train back from COP. I think he could, but that's we are not going to solve the problem by stop, by trying to get the whole of China or India or these rising powers not to have cars. Um, and that, that, So I think not only... It's not just simply that I don't think it's, you know, a substantial contribution. I think it heads in the wrong direction. We, we are... We, it is the by the way you know the one thing i do agree with greta thunberg about is the urgency of the situation um but what i don't agree with is the idea that um that the solution to this is going to lie in stopping doing some of these things what it's going to do it what it's going to lie in innovating and researching and finding innovative uh-huh. solutions that drop the green premiums so that people are willing to buy new products that are energy uh, clean, right? And and so therefore this isn't it isn't merely that I think it's sort of a bit irrelevant. It actually heads in the wrong direction that whole Danny, I think I, I, I Danny, you've used this get out of jail free card before and you have to be careful with it. And I'm 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 minded by the kind of, you know, the magical tech which was going to get rid of any need for a border in Ireland, etc. We can't be sure about what future tech will do. And therefore, the idea, the, the notion that actually people will have to change significant elements of their behaviour is not so kind of ridiculous. And it's not uh, uh, given given the scale of what's before us. It won't work, though, David. Uh, no, no. It's, 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 yeah. uh, sorry, Danny. It's got to be in the mix. Your bit's got to be in the mix, too. But this has got to be in, in, in the mix as well. Otherwise, no chance of hitting 1.5. Um, Precious, precious little chance of staying within within two degrees, and that is really bloody. I serious. don't agree because um, because of the size of the contribution that these things that you're talking about will make. It doesn't, um, it doesn't... They, they're not going to make an appreciation. So there are both. There are two arguments I'm making. Not only do I am I making the argument that they uh, that that they aren't the the sort of big solutions problem. I'm also arguing that they in themselves will end up being fairly irrelevant. The number of people that you'll be able to persuade to do these things, much of which is often, by the way, no. you know, you, in order to not gov- drive a government car, you have to, in the first place, be in the government, you know, which most people aren't. So, no, no. The, so yes, most people, most people are not going to have the problem that they're going to have a chauffeur-driven car. Sorry, I think, you're re- I, I think you're eliding some points here it, it, Good. With, with respect. What I'm not, what I'm not suggesting is that um, a small element of something that you do tomorrow, etc., will in and of itself change everything. I am suggesting that example is pretty important in this, in other words, to show people that it can be done and so on, and also to give you, if you like, the kind of moral statue that you need in order to persuade other people to do it. But we cannot have a situation whereby 
um, uh, other countries, for example, who haven't industrialized as early as us, use the same methods for industrialization as we did, because if that is what happens, we're dead. But I suppose, I mean, in politics at least, aside from, you know, the actual part of climate change, appearances do matter, consistency matters. So if, if for instance, it turned out that Boris Johnson wasn't paying his income tax, he'd found some way to avoid paying his income tax. Ultimately, the NHS isn't going to collapse as a result of not having Boris Johnson's tax, but it is important that he is seen to be doing the same as everyone else. Of course, because paying income tax, if everyone stopped paying income tax, that would be uh, a disaster. But But the point I'm making is that I don't believe we're going to solve the climate problem ultimately by uh, by everyone um, not doing the things that we're doing. The, the, it's quite obvious that not only are we going to carry on doing the things we're going to do, we're going to be doing more of them. And we will not solve the climate problem unless we manage to do those more things in a clean way. That's the only way of solving the problem. And, and while I, you know, while I kind of see the sort of moral force of what David is saying, you know, insofar as, you know, sort of partially saying anyway, uh, the practical side of it is um, simple. If we don't find clean sources of energy and electricity in particular, we won't solve this problem, whether or not people do or don't uh, leave the chauffeur driven car they don't have running. (laughs) Well, well, we do have... Sorry, go on, go, go on, Matt. You want to? I, I, I want to just move on, just because there was the other uh, another topic that we wanted to cover before we ran out of time. Uh, this question of um, Owen Paterson, uh, the former Conservative cabinet minister, facing being suspended from the House of Commons for uh, a month uh, as a result of um, uh, lobbying, having been found to have broken the rules, the parliamentary rules on lobbying. Uh, Lindsay Hoyle, uh, Henry Zeffman, reporting in the Times today that Lindsay Hoyle, the Commons Speaker, says that MPs risk bringing the House of Commons into disrepute if they overturn uh, the recommendation of a month-long suspension from Parliament. Um, what's your take on this, Danny? I, I think he's right. Um, the, the people are making a sort of mistake of category in some ways because Owen Paterson thinks of himself as having done something valuable. In other words, alert people to a danger that he that he faced, and because he thinks of himself as fundamentally an honest person, and I've got no reason to doubt that, and because his friends agree with that assessment, they think it means he's not guilty. But it, but 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 uh, any reasonable re- reading of what he did, he did promote the interests of those companies, whatever his motivation was, and the test is whether a reasonable person would regard those interests as being uh, in conflict, which they certainly would. Because he was being paid more than £100,000 a year, by the way. Exactly. So his feeling about himself, which which I'm perfectly willing to share, and his friend's feeling, uh, and the fact that he didn't feel that he was doing something dishonest when he did it, doesn't mean that it wasn't against the rules and shouldn't be found against the rules, that it's something that you, you couldn't... Do. You know, if you take £100,000 from a company, you simply have to be incredibly careful about declaring it. And uh, uh, throwing into the mix, John Burko, um, Henry's got hold, Henry Zeffman's got hold of a letter that John Burko's written uh, in defence of Owen Paterson, saying he's experienced a protracted Kafkaesque process. Different question as well, yeah. by the way. He can also be, we can have a, he can have a terrible process, he can be an honest person, he can think he was doing honest things honestly, his friends can think he was hard done by. All those can be true at the same time as him being guilty, and that's what I think probably is the case. Uh, d- briefly, David, your, your thoughts? I, I'm genuinely puzzled by it, uh, really. I don't, re- I don't understand how he could have so misread the rules as to think that what he was doing was not going to, to fall foul of them. Uh, it's, it's, it's beyond me. And I also noted that in his extremely angry appearances and uh, 
Danny has said that he obviously feels very angry about it. The invocation of the suicide of his wife continually was really troubling to me, uh, actually, because it seemed to be suggesting that actually by maintaining the report, you would be effectively killing her again a second time over. And I thought that was that was laying a very heavy burden on the people who have to take this decision. Daniel Finkelstein and David Ivanovich there. And of course, you can read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is the Focus Group. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for our monthly focus group, uh, which we do on Times Radio in association with Kext CNC. First of all, we must do our legal bits. Explain why a focus group is different to opinion polling and why do political parties, Downing Street, even companies do focus groups? What do you get from these half a dozen people uh, that you don't get from doing an opinion poll? Yeah, so it's worth saying what focus groups aren't. And they're not there to be the the definitive representative measure of what Britain is thinking. That's what polls are for with big sample sizes of around 1,000, 2,000. A focus group is a much smaller group of people, around sort of six to eight individuals. And it's about diving deeper into what might be informing those poll results. So how do people think? Why are they thinking things? How do they talk about it? Um, And therefore, companies, organisations, political parties, uh, number 10, can really dig deeper by running focus groups into what the people they're interested in think. And this time around on Times Radio, uh, we have talked to a group of swing voters, people who uh, a mix of Labour 2019 and Conservative 2019 voters who told us they are now undecided about how they might vote. And this time we've gone to Plymouth, uh, Manchester and Derby. And I suppose that's the advantage, isn't it? By uh, Everyone's on Zoom these days. So we did, it was really nice. We got a, sort of a nice mix of accents and geographical uh, spread. Um, and, and, and dogs, Matt. There were lots, and, of, there dogs were lots of dogs. There were lots of dogs last time. And the thing we should point out is that Times Radio doesn't choose who they are. I don't choose who they are. You don't choose who they are. How are these people found? 
Yep. So we use a um, independent uh, uh, recruitment company um, who basically uh, go around. They uh, literally go onto the streets with clipboards. They use social media. They work um, from uh, lists of people and find people who match the criteria of those we're looking for. And as I say, for this one, mix of 2019 vote, undecided, mix of genders, mix of ages. Um, to really make sure there is that there is that spread of people and we're getting the right people in the group. Um, they're definitely because somebody was tweeting me last night saying you never have any young people on. There were definitely some young people in this group and, and some retired. So we've got tried to get at least a, a, a spread. Right. Let's dive in then, uh, James. Let's hear from them. Uh, let's kick off with your your usual first question, a straightforward. How is the government doing? I don't know. Everything that they seem to tell you is rubbish. That they're telling you one thing one minute and then something else the next minute. So everybody really doesn't know the truth as to what's going on. I don't know if anybody else would have handled it any better, but I don't think particularly COVID was handled fantastically. We were locked down too late. Everything, we always seem to be a little bit behind. I think they're doing the best they can. I don't think anybody else could have or would have been able to have done any better. I agree slightly that the impression we get sometimes that we are a little bit maybe half-hearted or we're a little bit kind of slower on the uptake but I just think that's because that's the information maybe that we're being given or seeing in the media. Government officials they never answer a straight question so, you know which is extremely frustrating for me and at the end of the day because a lot of people just want um, they just want a black and white answer as far as that's concerned. My feeling is that they're not doing particularly well uh, that there seems to be an awful lot of firefighting going on waiting for something to happen and then reacting to it and in all honesty, I think they're looking kind of shambolic and amateurish. So they haven't done that bad of a job, but on the other hand, like they haven't really been telling us the whole truth. And I feel like they try and what they say and what they do is like two completely different things. So, James, a, uh, a mixed bag there uh, from the group. But some of the usual themes uh, that we've had ever since we started doing this, what, 18 months ago, uh, it's confusing, they don't know what they're talking about, but on the other hand, you know, they've done the best they can. Um, a bit slow on the uptake, but, you know, we are that we are where we are. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, people um, listening who might be hoping that opinions turned against the government will uh, yet again be disappointed. People very much talking about giving them the benefit of the doubt, a sense that it's been an unprecedented situation, um, and you can really see uh, the pandemic almost acting as a sort of defensive screen uh, for the government's reputation because people uh, really do look at it and say, well, actually, um, in their view, not not no one else could have done uh, much of a better job. But you did. It's not. It's not that this is a, a public um, enamoured with the government by any means. It's um, it, it's a slight sort of shrug of the shoulders. Um, they do feel that on, on many things, they sort of come to things too late. Uh, you heard they're a little bit too slow. Somebody else said a little bit half-hearted. Um, so it's not exactly that they're, they're, they're enamoured with the government, but, uh, but as I say, they are giving the benefit of the doubt still. And it was interesting that you asked them just straightforwardly, how's the government doing? And they quite quickly flipped to talking about COVID. That was the sort of think government, think COVID, rather than all the other, you know, it, well, and we'll talk about the COP and the budget and so on. But that wasn't that wasn't what they thought the government was sort of there for or about. It was about how was the government doing? Was sort of how are they? How what, how's COVID playing out? Yeah, and I think that's a really important point because it shows you the difference between uh, public opinion, perhaps in sort of normal times uh, away from an election, and how that can suddenly shift. So. 
everything the public are sort of thinking about, whether we're answering voting intention polls, whether they're talking on this focus group, is through that prism of COVID. Now, it's not impossible that should an election take place, then actually the conversation and a thing in people's minds might shift quite quickly. It was a bit like that in 2017 when Theresa May was prime minister. Um, before uh, the 2017 election was called, um, every, everyone was thinking about Brexit and that was a natural advantage to Theresa May and a, and a natural disadvantage to Jeremy Corbyn. But when the election was called, uh, never mind uh, what happened next with the campaign, but even at the very start of that campaign, people's minds shifted to actually thinking about the future of the country, thinking about domestic issues. So that sort of COVID reputational screen that the government have could shift if the conversation became about something else in, say, an election campaign. OK, let's move on then. The uh, We always ask them straight, very straightforwardly, just sum up in a word or, as often happens, a phrase, uh, what they think of the party leaders. So let's take a listen to uh, this is what the Times Radio Focus Group had to say about Boris Johnson. Doing the best you can in the situation. Bit wacky. Do you know what? I have mixed feelings about him. I, I feel that he's, he did everything too late, but he's done the best with what he's got. And I, I, I think that he is, um, I find him quite funny at times um i can't take him serious at times i want to tell him to brush his hair and i would say he doesn't fill me with confidence just by the way he presents himself it comes across a bit bumbling he wants to be loved and liked um he doesn't like giving bad news but he wants the job but he's not statesmanlike he's the least statesmanlike politician i think i have ever seen my my laundry basket is tidier than him to be honest like he didn't fill you with confidence at all because he just seemed as though it was, like, not really into it all. I think it's quite funny, to be fair. I feel like sometimes he tries to make out like he knows what he's talking about, but I don't feel like he does. He just sort of looks like, you know, someone, I don't know, that, you know, he's just come back from, like, a night out, you know, you know, from a wedding do, and he's just a bit, he just strolled into work the next day. But I think I would sooner deal with somebody like him who talks a bit more our language rather than coming up with all these fancy words what articles don't really understand anyway. Well, there we are, James. Uh, there was also an extended uh, discussion about whether or not he was like a Little Britain character. Um, what should Boris Johnson take away from that? Because I mean, I mean, more critical probably than the group last month, but there is still this site, which I'm, ever since you've pointed out to me, I found really interesting, that previously the sort of left criticism is that basically stupid voters fall for all this Boris Johnson nonsense. And they're not. They're in on the joke. They totally understand what he's doing, the hair ruffling, the not smartening himself up and all of that. But there's still, it, it, there's an appeal to that. Yeah, I, I think that's right. There's this sort of likability factor about it. It's not that um, eventually the curtain's going to be raised and, and, and Boris Johnson's going to be exposed um, uh, for who he is. They, they sort of know that. Um, and as you say, there is there is an appeal to it. But look, I mean, there, there was a fair bit of, uh, a fair few negative comments in there. Um, and it's interesting because uh, this attack that Keir Starmer made at Labour Party conference um, last month, clearly trying to dig into this uh, sense that Boris Johnson is perhaps not fit to lead the country, that he is not statesmanlike. And you can see that Labour, uh, what Labour are picking up from their focus group, because there is some of that residual uh, worry amongst voters. 
The problem is, is that as we saw last in last month's uh, focus group, Matt, is that uh, once people dig a little bit deeper, they actually feel that actually maybe Boris Johnson does know what he's talking about, does know what he's doing, and that actually gives them a bit more confidence. So it is a weakness, but I'm, I, I can't quite see it uh, being uh, too problematic uh, for Boris Johnson because this is the Boris Johnson uh, that they know and that they've always no, and I thought that last comment there um, from one of the uh, ladies um, in, from Manchester in the group was was really sort of compelling. This idea that you know she was criticising him, she was calling him a joke, and then she said, "You know what, though, I'd rather deal with somebody like that who speaks my language." And I think that does tell you something about the strength of Boris Johnson as a communicator. Well, that was another thing I was going to mention: is that time and again they quoted back things that Boris Johnson said. Um, a bit later on, we were talking about uh, COP twenty six. One of them said. Um, oh, he's talking about, is it five minutes past midnight or something to do with midnight? Um, and someone else told it, which actually at that point, this was like five, six o'clock. This, this was only four or five hours after he'd said it. Um, someone else talked about how he said we were five nil down at half time in terms of climate change. And I mean, to some extent, they didn't necessarily know what he was getting. But they, they got a sense of he was being pessimistic. But also they remembered it in these sort of... People roll their eyes at these sort of colourful metaphors and turns of phrase that he does, but they really lodge very quickly in people's minds. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And uh, same thing goes for um, the language about you know, James Bond yesterday. It gets mocked, but actually voters hear it. And uh, I-, I couldn't name one thing from our focus groups over the last 18 months that uh, Keir Starmer has said that stuck with voters. They couldn't recall a phrase, whereas with Boris Johnson, as you say, it does come up uh, uh, quite a lot. So it, it speaks to that uh, sort of power of accessibility that, that Boris Johnson has has clearly you know, really done very well on as a politician. OK, let's, that's, that's Boris Johnson. Then. Let's take a listen to what he had uh, the group had to say about Keir Starmer. He is a millionaire and I feel like he's just doing it for like a jolly sort of thing comes across as like very argumentative and he just doesn't seem like he agrees on anything he just comes across as like just always like angry like just a really negative person and i just think when somebody is like a millionaire like that and in politics how relatable are they to the everyday man to some degree as well, he unfortunately got the job at the wrong time. You know, we literally just gone into lockdown back in April last year. Um, you know, I do feel a bit of sympathy in the fact that he's not been able to get out and about. He's obviously pulls apart in his appearance. He looks more the man for the job. I watched a documentary. I can't even I can't remember what it was called, and but they were interviewing him, and I actually thought he came across quite down to earth. He talked a lot about his mum who had worked for the NHS for years and she'd got some kind of disability. I, I quite liked him from, from that. I think he could have come in at a really good time and made a really good impression and kind of come in with a really refreshing approach after everything that Labour had just been through. But I didn't think he did. I just thought that as soon as he started speaking, I thought, here we go again. He, he's, he's very calm. He's the, comp- the polar opposite of, of Boris Johnson in that respect. And I think some people see that as perhaps a bit bland. He's clearly he's a very clever man. He certainly appears more statesmanlike, which is the thing we could probably all get behind long term. So a slightly more positive group uh, than uh, last month on Keir Starmer. But um, I mean, you should, probably shouldn't be popping the champagne corks yet, James. Yeah, it certainly was uh, more positive than that really quite uh, brutal one last time round. But actually, the same themes that were underpinning that did did come through this sense of by a couple of people there that he might be out of touch. 
uh, a millionaire. Some somebody mentioned you, you, you could hear there, um, as well as uh, concerns that perhaps he hadn't made much of an impression. And the thing I noticed is that people sort of talk about him in the past tense as well. Um, that he came along and he didn't make an impression. Um, however, uh, some sort of shards of light for him certainly um, reference to the Piers Morgan interview that that Keir Starmer um, did uh, uh, back earlier this year um, as a positive, and perhaps that gives a sense that really he could reintroduce himself to some of these voters. But I think what what is clear is that Keir Starmer's major bet now is on competence and on that statesmanlike quality that you heard that that focus group respondent talk about. Um, it doesn't seem that on authenticity, on strength, Keir Starmer is really going to be able to change these voters' minds, barring a real a real upset or a real change in his approach. It feels like his best bet with these voters is on competence, on Boris Johnson imposing in some way, uh, Keir Starmer being able to paint him as the bumbling buffoon and him as the man ready to take the reins and, and sort of come, come to the rescue of the country. It's a big bet because obviously we've had lots of moments where people think that's happened to Boris Johnson and it hasn't. But you can see that competence is the best way in for Keir Starmer. Excellent stuff. Uh, James Johnson, uh, stay there. This We're doing the uh, Times Radio Focus Group in association with the global communications firms Keck CNC. Up next, we'll find out what the group think of Rishi Sunak and his budget. It's Matt Jolly on Times Radio in association with Mastercard Strive, empowering small businesses for a digital future. Matt Chorley on Times Radio with Strive UK from Mastercard, empowering small businesses for a digital future. Find out more at mastercard.co.uk slash strive. Morning, this is Matt Chorley bringing you the latest Times Radio focus group. We assemble a panel of swing voters selected by an independent market research company. We don't have any. Uh, some are former Conservative voters, some are former Labour voters. Uh, James Johnson uh, is still with me, former uh, number 10 uh, pollster. James, just remind us, where are they from, uh, this panel? They're from Manchester, uh, Derby and Plymouth. Lovely stuff. So we've heard what they thought about Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer. Let's turn attention to less than a week ago, of course, uh, the budget. Um, well, let's find out what the panel think about uh, the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak. Doing a good job and getting us through COVID as best he can. Uh, the, the, I think the man who would be king. I think he's on a mission to become the next leader of the Conservative Party. I don't think anyone could fault him. You know, he's... Basically, doing everything we we're wanting, like you know, investing more money in in the NHS, you know, increasing minimum wage. He's doing all the stuff that we want to happen, and I think he's been probably the only person throughout this whole what, let's say, two years that's actually you know been on and said he's done what he said he's going to do. I think he always comes across as that he knows what he's doing. Competent as competent chancellor definitely looks the definitely looks the part with as the as the politician. Well, for me, I think he, he does appear out of touch with reality. And um, I quite liked him. He was the one who delivered the information about self-employed um, allowance, getting some benefits and, and help throughout the COVID. So he was probably my favourite person to listen to because it meant I was getting some good news usually. <laughs> well, that's an honest uh, assessment, James. Uh, people quite like him because he gave them money. Yeah, though, though also it's interesting, you know, they, they do refer to uh, how he delivered that money as well. And I've said before on, 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 the, on the show that it, it's that way that he, they felt that he connected with them. Um, he's not like a normal politician. But look, this was uh, uh, Rishi unblemished, I think. Um, he has come out of uh, the budget. He's come out of two uh, tax uh, raising events this year. 
Um, and even where people grumble about those, and in other focus groups I've done, actually I have seen um, frustrations about um, uh, perhaps people who are just above the income uh, threshold for the minimum wage or for social benefits feeling like perhaps things weren't for them in there weren't things for them in in this budget. Um, but he comes out of this uh, uh, more popular than ever, um, and actually it tends to be <laughs> Boris Johnson uh, that gets to blame uh, 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 for those things. We've um, had. We've had so many messages already about uh, Keir Starmer's a millionaire. Why does the panel think this? Boris Johnson lives like a millionaire, even if he isn't. Well, he probably is. Uh, and Rishi Sunak isn't a millionaire, he's a billionaire, says one person. Voters are crazy. But that's why it's interesting <laughs> to, do this, uh, to do this exercise. Uh, but let's focus on the budget then, because it, it was literally less than a week ago, and it was amazing how we've seemed to have forgotten it. Rishi Sunak puts all that money into it, all that effort, and uh, let's find out how much of it actually had an impact. Uh, it does seem unconservative life in terms of the fact that obviously taxes are increasing in order to, to pay for it. Again, I think it's this, it's this back to what Boris wants again, really. He doesn't want to give bad news. In fact, at the end of the day, we're broke. You know, we spent all this money over this last 12 months with COVID. At the end of the day, where else are we borrowing it from? We used to talk about budget um, monetary. I thought it was encouraging and fair. It's a populist budget, was my feeling. Uh, they're, I think they're betting that if they give stuff away now, tax rises from the next budget won't be as as unpalatable. But it's still Theresa May's magic money tree. They're giving away money we haven't got. I feel like he's putting the right amount of money into the right sectors, like the NHS and, you know, increasing minimum wage, et cetera, et cetera. He's not getting it out of thin air. Like, I don't know where he's getting it from. And it's, it's, it's easy to say a figure, but you've got to have the money to be able to give. This, I thought, was really interesting, um, James, that people liked the money, you know, if it was helping them in particular, but then they do have concerns about where it's coming from. This line about how it wasn't conservative, the budget, Uh, lots of spending uh, on what Boris wants, you know, the magic money tree and all that sort of thing. Yeah, now clearly it's a mixed bag here because clearly um, the fact that they're concerned about uh, the amount of money means that the Conservatives are getting through their message that they are spending uh, more money, which has always been one of the criticisms um, of the Conservatives. Um, that uh, sort of there's too much debt, there's too much being spent. Um, because voters judge parties on relative terms to each other rather than absolute terms, people aren't sat there just measuring how they feel about the Conservatives. They're thinking about the Conservatives and Labour. It actually gives the Tories a bit more leeway on things like spending. So that debt argument is actually much more damaging for Labour, if Labour were seen to be spending too much, than it is for the Conservatives uh, in this budget. So I don't expect Rishi Sunak's uh, team will be too too, too uh, discouraged by that, but it does show that there are potential openings for Labour if they really did pivot um, to being more fiscally conservative, but there aren't really very, really very clear signs of that happening anytime soon. And I suppose this is where politics comes into play. If, if the sort of the negative economic criticism of the Tories is they look after the rich and hit the poor, if they're now, if they've moved to no ideology or spending too much uh, mm. on, on public services for me, uh, that's a positive. Whereas if um, you're spending too much on public services is the criticism of uh, the Labour Party. So, you know, moving to the centre, actually, is anyone who's watched that um, Blair Brown documentary, you know, diffusing the economic criticism was pretty key to their to their appeal. Um, James, I just want to um, sneak in. We'll do um, uh, what they think about COP26 in a moment. I just wanted to sneak in. Uh, one of the big uh, political stories of this week, of course, is the row with France. Uh, you'd think from the papers uh, that we were uh, on a war footing. But this is what the group had to say about this uh, this standoff between uh, London and Paris. 
it's kind of handbags as we'd like to probably like to term it. However, there seems to be quite a lot of posturing. Certain sections of the media are trying to ramp this up as some sort of 21st century version of the Falklands or something similar to that. And it's a storm in a teacup, frankly. I thought, well, this is old news, really. This has been going on for years, being territorial. And the fishermen, obviously, it takes time, a lot of time, to kind of administer everything that they've caught. But I didn't think it was new news, so I didn't really pay much attention to it. But the problem is you've got, there's again, there's big egos, isn't there, on both sides. I mean, the way you look at it from the French side, there's a big issue being made as well or not, um, you know, because he's got a re-election next year. Um, you know, he's got to sort of, you know, puff his chest out and sort of make something of it. And by the same token, you know, we've got Boris on our side of things and they both like to puff the chest out and, and look good. Sometimes you feel that small issues are magnified for the sake of perhaps distracting from things going on in other places, as though they can win brownie points, for want of a better term, with something as small as a fishing dispute. There we are, James. Just confirmation that the great British public are a lot smarter than we often give them credit for. Yeah, and quite a bit more mature as well. I think they often see right through what uh, uh, Macron and perhaps Boris uh, might be doing. Um, yeah, I mean, not much to add from me. Uh, you heard it there. They don't feel like this is a big story. Um, and they sort of say, look, stop squabbling, get together and sort it out. Lovely stuff. Uh, wise words uh, from the focus group. Right, still to come, we will find out what they think about COP26, what changes they're making themselves and their hopes for success. And then, as ever, we round off with their, their final messages to Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer. Matt Chorley on Times Radio with Strive UK from Mastercard, connecting small business owners with the right digital tools and support to help big ideas thrive. Find out more at mastercard.co.uk slash strive. Uh, because we're still doing the uh, Times Radio Focus Group in association with the global communications firm Kex CNC. James Johnson, former number 10 pollster, is still with us. Uh, James, just remind us uh, who this panel are, where are they, who are they? Yep, so we're talking to swing voters, a mix of Labour and Conservative 2019 voters who now say they're undecided when it comes to how they vote, and we've taken them from Manchester, Derby, uh, and Plymouth. OK, and we asked them about uh, the budget and the party leaders. We've already done that. Let's now uh, turn to climate change, COP26. And you asked them, will it be a success or a failure? Why haven't they done something before? Like, you know, everyone knows climate change has been an issue for God knows how many years. Why they only started to say, like, right, by this year, we're going to get zero emissions or we're going to have you know, no petrol, diesel cars on the road and, you know, to reduce all these, was it, carbon gases. Like, it's the same with everything. Like, it's just a little bit too late. I think because the, the main um, people that are guilty of doing all this are not there. I don't know how successful it's going to be because it should be the, the biggest polluters that are in attendance, really. I imagine that they will get a lot of promises. The agenda is really to the fore currently quite how this whatever they make promises they make is policed i'm not sure or indeed what repercussions are if they don't keep to their promises um i think it will be a success mainly um for the main reason that it's it's a global issue that everyone's talking about so at least it's going to bring bring these in, um like issues to the forefront of a lot of people's mind around the world so that was the sort of, um, they, were, they were very much aware of the summit and what they wanted to come out of it, if not hugely optimistic, Jane. 
Yeah, exactly. It's pretty clear they're not they're not completely writing it off, um, nor are they sure it's going to be a, a storming success. So I think Boris Johnson really has got uh, you know opportunity here if he is able to get a get a deal, is able to to show real progress to, to really um, sort of take take this forward. Because that's the thing I've noticed generally is that people's own appetite to do their own change their own behaviour to get to net zero is quite dependent on a feeling that actually politicians, governments around the world are doing stuff as well. It motivates them. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, some certainly some signs of optimism there. Um, the big frustration, though, is really about uh, China, Russia, perhaps not attending um, or certainly their leaders not attending. That frustrates people. Um, and you heard the gentleman there refer to there'll be lots of promises, but who's actually going to do the enforcement? So there is this feeling of where's the stick? You know, we might have the carrot with this lovely uh, summit this this week, but people are questioning well how, how who who is actually going to be the organization enforcing this and making sure these targets are met yeah and in fact you asked them uh what what do you think will be the headlines at the end of the uh, at the end of the summit climate summit a success so near and yet so far cop 27 26 a success the end of covid is definitely here the world goes green I mean, to some extent, I think I was sort of hopeful of what it might be rather than the um, what their actual expectations were. They're also quite cynical. They basically will all be declared a success without it necessarily uh, being the case. Uh, but let's hear what you are, because you asked them sort of more directly about what, sort of what they were doing in their own lives and whether or not we should uh, do or pay more uh, to help the environment. We all need to do more. We all do our bits that we are aware of. We all do the best that we can with what we've got. But if you were to put your mind to it and to research it a bit more um, and to give it more thought I would expect that we can all do a bit more. Uh, in my industry um, I just wish that the government would just um, make a, a decision and say what has to happen then it would people would know where they stand whereas at the minute it's left to the ind- individual publishers. If everybody did a bit more maybe the meeting in Glasgow would go a bit better. You know we've all got to do our bit and if to a degree that means paying more maybe that's what we've got to do it's like the whole thing with insulate britain isn't in terms of that we've got to insulate everything we can't physically insulate everything not everyone can have a an air source boiler you know um, air source heater you know there's not there's not a single answer so we can all do bits but we but it's almost as that there's it's one solution for everything but which just isn't the case what do you think the government should take from that? If you were sort of advising on policy on uh, climate change policy, James, what would you say should be the the main message from that? Well, I think the first thing to say is that if we were doing that focus group in the US, if we were doing it in Canada, if we were doing it in Australia, particularly with the mix of voters from both parties, I don't think you would have got quite a story like that. The UK is not polarised on the environment and it doesn't really map to uh, party affiliation like it is in some of those other countries. So that's a positive uh, for the government. There is that willingness and enthusiasm there. Um, the issue is, is when you get onto the issue of cost and you really start testing um, some of those costs, people's initial enthusiasm slightly wanes away. So I think I think the, the key thing is, is that the sort of, I think what the government is focused on, it needs to tell a positive story. It needs to tell a positive story about how um, acting on this can actually change things. And one lady, when we asked her, said she didn't really know where to get information from. She didn't really know where to find out. People don't feel there's some sort of central portal where they can just go and find out what they can do uh, to help climate change. So a bit of that clarity, a bit of a positive story. And actually, I think less of the um, scaremongering, uh, terrifying statistics, 
we don't often find in focus group that those things motivate people. It's more, what can I do to make a positive difference rather than, oh my goodness, the world's going to end, I better act now. It's those positive things that tend to motivate people. Okay, uh, let's finish off then with the uh, the final messages to the two party leaders. I know they both listen, Boris Johnson and Kiss Tyler. Morning to you both. Uh, let's take a listen to what the uh, focus group said was their message to Boris Johnson. Um, stop firefighting and have a plan for the future. Yeah, need, need, need to plan more. He, he shoots from the lip too much. Um, to act faster on important issues like with COVID and brush your hair. Thank you very much for getting us through the last 18 months to two years and carry on the good work. Drop the PG Woodhouse Act and act like a responsible adult. Just get COVID sorted and just get back to normal. OK, that's what the group had to say to Boris Johnson. Now, this is what they said to Keir Starmer. Just stop arguing all the time, just being so against everything. Uh, speak to a publicist and um, bring your personality to the fore. Stop arguing, come up with something constructive rather than opposing when you've got hindsight, the benefit of hindsight. Tell him to get a good campaign going to show people that he's going to work for the people ready for the next election uh, get your team sorted out um you know he needs to sort of get all labor speaking as one uh, break the mold and answer questions properly rather than that a political answer so there we are that's the message to uh the two party leaders what would you say if you're advising them then james are they in good shape bad shape what should they be doing in the coming months well, certainly it's clearly advantage uh, Boris Johnson, even with this group that was a little bit more uh, sympathetic to Labour overall. And when we asked them, Boris versus Keir, all but one uh, still chose Boris. So I think the, the real pressure is obviously still on Keir Starmer. Um, it's almost, uh, I think the key thing for Keir Starmer is he needs to stop balancing, um, trying to be really good, positive and nice to his party, but also trying to please all the voters. Um, you know, He needs to take a sort of slightly less timid approach if he's really going to mark out to those voters. Because although some of these people quite liked him, you could hear there in the messages, they wanted to see more of his personality. They wanted to see him make a bit of an impact. They wanted to hear what he had to say about the future. So he needs to find ways to mark himself out. Now, it's not quite as easy in a world of lots of news going on and when you're in the opposition of just going on TV and talking about it. He needs to find moments to mark those things out and to distinguish himself uh, from the old view of Labour. And that's the real challenge now for Keir Starmer. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from?